Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to the BBM Global Network with 25 years in broadcast audio and video production. Our passionate team creates content and marketing for the world of Internet talk radio. If you've got a passion, come join us at bbmglobalnetwork.com. The BBM Global Network. Your voice is now heard. Welcome to Both Sides of the Prescription with your host, Dr. Megan and Dr. Ron. Both Sides of the Prescription brings together Dr. Megan and Dr. Ron to discuss pertinent medical issues from both an alternative and traditional medicine perspective. So now, please welcome the hosts of Both Sides of the Prescription, Dr. Megan and Dr. Ron. Welcome, everyone, to both sides of the prescription radio show on BBM Global and Tune In Radio. Like every Wednesday night, you are here with Dr. Megan Kirschling, and I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Ron Kirschling. Before we get in the show tonight, which we're going to talk about truly the effects that food and diet has on our brains and the addiction with food, uh, talk about some interesting articles, information, research, and physiology, let us tell you a little bit about ourselves and what brought us together to do the show. I am a both traditionally and uh, alternatively trained physician in Minnesota where I own a clinic, and I treat patients on a different Uh, well, throughout the spectrum of health. And so I have people that come to me truly for prevention. And then I have individuals that come to me for various different health conditions. And what I've realized is that a lot of times our conversations in medicine come from one side or the other, that we either uh, take a traditional approach and look at different things that we tend to look for in traditional medicine, like diseases and disease pathways and labs and uh, different tests like that. Or we tend to go more alternatively, whether the patient decides to do more homeopathic remedies, uh, energy work, chiropractic, acupuncture, massage, and that a lot of times people feel like they have to choose one side or the other. And that we're not having conversations that really focus on the positives and the negatives of both sides. And that this really comes at the effect of not then providing the most comprehensive care. And so I wanted to have conversations where we looked at both sides of medicine and discussed the good and the bad and everything in between. And I wanted to have them with one of my most favorite people in the whole wide world, Dr. Ron Kirschling, my father. Hi, Megan. Good to be here this evening. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Um, I am uh, traditionally changed as a, uh, as a physician, an MD. I um, have been in clinical practice now for over 30 years. 
Uh, my initial of specialty was in internal medicine, and then I subspecialized in medical oncology and hematology. And uh, my practice is uh, really a clinical practice, primarily in medical oncology. Uh, this really has been interesting for me in one sense, in that um, uh, I deal with a patient population, oftentimes dealing with life-threatening uh, problems. And in that milieu, while they have come to me to help with what I'm trained to help them with, they are very, very interested in anything that's going to help with uh, their health and wellness. And so it is very common that um, I will get questions from them in, in terms of what they can do besides the surgery or the radiation therapy or the medications that I prescribe as a medical oncologist. As you can tell from Megan's introduction, uh, she has had a very interesting uh, education that's gone from nursing to chiropractic to nutritional chiropractic, back to nurse practitionership in women's health and in family medicine. And it's uh, it's been fascinating to watch her through that journey. Uh, in that process of watching her, I've been able to link up with her and learn about um, areas that maybe we could describe as more integrative medicine, such as functional medicine. And so this has been very, very interesting for me. As Megan said, and, and I think is very true, uh, we both talk often about the fact that uh, we want uh, our patients to be able to have options. And within that environment, we think it's most healthy if the care providers are always communicating and always uh, open to what can be provided for our patients. And the whole purpose of our discussions here are to hopefully prove that uh, there can be a forum where traditional medicine and uh, non-traditional medicine can come together for the benefit uh, of, uh, of patients. Well, and I think that the topic tonight is interesting because I think that when we look at the topic of food and diet and really the effects that it has on our health and wellness, I think this is something that a lot of us don't agree with, uh, that we come from a lot of different sides and angles with this conversation. So I think it would be interesting, too, to sort of talk first about what you've noticed with the role of food and diet, not only with, you know, our health and wellness today and how we sort of approach that and what we traditionally sort of think is the role of diet, but then also what you find in more of the traditional medicine world about needing to approach diet in order to get somebody better. Well, you know, I think that um, a, a question that I get quite often uh, from my patients is the question of, you know, what kind of what kind of diet, you know, should I be on? And I think it's a very um, it's a very natural question to ask because, you know, I certainly think that one of the things that uh, people faced with a diagnosis such as cancer um, want to look at is what can they do? You know, how can they maintain um, some control over the situation and benefit the situation. And I think uh, I think diet is a, a natural thing for them to look at and say, listen, um, you know, what, what would be best for me? Now, 
I have to admit that I probably look at this from a different standpoint than, than you made may and and I we've talked about you know whether or not we should talk about cancer therapy being solely uh, dietary therapy um, I tend to look at diet more from a complementary st- standpoint um, more from a standpoint of what uh, what it can do in addition or, or complement what what I can do in traditional medicine, uh, but I, I think it's a it's a it's a very legitimate thing to to discuss, and um, I think very importantly in a circumstance where patients um, feel like they lose so much power, I think it's uh, it's an important thing that uh, they can look at and they can do uh, for for the for their uh, their own benefit. Mm-hmm. And how. Uh... How much would you say that in, you know, like how many times do you think that really like patients are sort of approached like that? Because I think that that's an important part that sometimes we don't address that we can bring all of this together, that we can do dietary changes and change diet along with traditional uh, um, therapies. I think more, um, I think that unfortunately, um, most of the time it isn't brought forward. Uh, I mean, I think that there are certain um, situations that occur in our therapy, uh, which we in which we know we're going to affect the the patient's ability to eat. And so we we talk about diet, but it's in a it's in a much different sort of circumstance. Uh, where we're basically trying to uh, make sure that they they simply get enough calories, but I think in terms of of looking at it much more proactively across lines, um, I I think we maybe don't do it as often as we could, and I think part of the reason is is our education, and part of the reason is um, the feeling that there there is still issue in terms of. Uh, what do you tell patients? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there are circumstances where uh, where oncology care um, is wedded more with integrative medicine. Um, and I have had patients who have gone to, let's say, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, uh, which advertises itself as being a holistic um, um, being a holistic type of treatment. and and some patients who've really appreciated the the dietary recommendations that they're given. Well, and I think that something you said is a really important sort of thing to take on and to get into the conversation is I really like what you said that it's not just about looking at calories and what the conversation is really going to focus around tonight is a, I think a really good conversation about the fact that not all calories or all food is created equal. And I think a big conversation is really some of these foods that we're addicted to some of these foods that are in our diet Um, You know, we just think of as calories, a calorie, we're sort of trained to look at calories. And now I think we've broadened or, you know, and those are air quotes, broadened our horizons and now started to look at the fact that what we could do is maybe even break it up into proteins, carbs and fat. But really what I think we need to look at is uh, the effects that different food has on our body. And one of the things, you know, the nutrition class I teach, I bring up the point a lot that people will say a calorie is a calorie is a calorie and that we really just have to look at energy in versus energy out. But the truth of the matter is, is that we can all agree that 1500 calories of fried chicken is way different and has way different of an effect on our brain, our body, um, 
and our fat storage than 1500 calories, you know, a fried chicken versus 1500 calories of broccoli. And so, you know, what we're going to talk about tonight is how different food does have different effects really on our brain and our body. Well, yes. And what I was pointing out is that, you know, sometimes we get into a situation with someone who is ill, um, either from their disease or they might be temporarily ill from the therapy we're giving them, where we, we, we may have to, for a period of time, uh, simply look at it as, as how do we get calories in? Mm-hmm. But I, I think, as you said, and I would agree, in most situations, uh, we can look at it at a much higher um, a higher level than uh, than just calories in or calories out, and and I and I think you're right. I think that that our mission, our goal should be as to um, as to how do we get the the highest quality uh, diet for uh, for an individual, and it you know it it, it makes sense uh, as much as uh, I think we emphasize the importance of diet for wellness one it just to me would make common sense that uh, uh, you need a good diet even more when you're ill exactly and i think that that's a huge takeaway is that you know a lot of times i think we look at diet uh, with any kind of illness as just getting through it and we can even step back from cancer and just say that you know it's interesting cuz when you know i get the flu or get sick you know, my dietary choices, maybe when you're not, you know, at the point that you're vomiting and you can keep something down, but you go to popsicles and you go to white bread and you go to things like that. And so a lot of times I think we don't nourish our body and look at what we're putting in at some of the most important times. Yeah, I, I, um, and again, I, I don't think that we have to look at this as either or, and I think you and I, personally believe that um, we should look at this as an and, uh, meaning that um, we're not, we're not discount, we shouldn't be discounting uh, the very legitimate and, and really dramatic therapeutic interventions that have been made with modern medicine. But I, I think we also need to recognize that it, it is important that we, um, we don't ignore diet and uh, this can be a great ally if um, uh, if we give it proper attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a huge, and that's where I think this is all, you know, really supposed to be coming from is that, you know, we talk about these both sides of the medicine, but really there's a lot of power in both and that I don't think it should be one or either. I think that what it should be is the simple fact that we can bring together the best of both and really for the benefit. And uh, when we get into a lot of, you know, this next part of the conversation, I do think it's really interesting and even eye-opening for someone like myself, who's now spent years studying nutrition, to really, really talk about and dive into all of the different effects that these food have on our body. And that not only when we talk about this for prevention and we talk about this for the effects on health and wellness, but how we can also use po- or use food as a powerful tool to help us to heal. Yeah, I think I think that... Um, we we should accept the fact that it uh, it can be a it can be an effective tool. Um, it can be something that can make a difference, and um, and it it's something that should um, that has a rightful place in the discussion of uh, how do we optimize our care for a patient. 
Yeah. And I think that that's a really important conversation and one that we will start to dive into right after these commercial breaks. So stick with us as we talk more about food, uh, food addiction and the effect that it has on our health and wellness. You're listening to both sides of the prescription on BBM Global and Tune In Radio. Renaissance woman, trailblazer, maverick. Those are just some of the words to describe Tashandra Poulard, owner and CEO of House of Virgo Entertainment, LLC, a woman minority veteran-owned entertainment company based in Washington, D.C. Ms. Poulard served 10 years honorably in the United States Navy and departed from active duty to pursue her dreams of becoming an entertainment mogul. House of Virgo Entertainment offers script writing, producing, directing, DJ services, editing, and more. They cater to businesses, corporations, college students, working professionals, aspiring artists and nonprofit organizations, and employ veterans of the armed forces. Tashandra Poulard is pioneering the way we view media and taking her brand global. Visit her at www.houseofvirgoentertainment.com or call 281-515-3740 and like her on Facebook at House of Virgo Entertainment, LLC. Certified professional coach Pamela Reeves can help you with your relationships. Motivational and image coaching are just some of the ways she can help you enhance all aspects of your life. Her book, Is It Love or Merely a Sick Attachment?, helps readers clearly distinguish healthy, loving relationships from toxic ones. Ms. Reeves has put her words into action through Ray of Hope Kenya, an international initiative that provides outreach to victims of abusive relationships there with the goal of helping them rebuild their lives and the tools to avoid abuse. Ms. Reeves operates various business interests through her umbrella network, Nella LLC, and credits her success to her diverse work experience. Whatever your goals, whether striking a balance, reinventing your image, or simply lifting your lifestyle, Pamela Reeves will help you achieve them. Your life, your call. Dial 410-902-5715 or email Pamela at pamreg01 at verizon.net. She's also on the web at pamreeves.com and on Twitter at Pamela underscore Reeves. Welcome back, everybody, to both sides of the prescription radio show on BBM Global and Tune In Radio. So, Megan, uh, as we kind of started out this evening, we we talked about the fact that I think we mutually agree that uh, food is and diet um, for an individual going through an illness um, is a is potentially an important component of uh, how we care for that patient. In in that light, um, obviously the difficulty that arises is uh, what recommendations do you make? And I have to admit that in in my view of this at this point, understanding that I look at it as a complementary therapy, not as a replacement for the treatments that I do, um, I I kind of look at it as things um, as as something that you know you may not go from diet. A to diet B completely, there may be kind of a transition. And I kind of look at it as things that are most important to kind of lose from the diet um, that are are probably most detrimental. And I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I've really come to learn about diets in general is that, um, you know, it's going to be different for everybody. But one of the things that I think is important, you know, as we talked last time about, you know, sugar and dairy and gluten is to really realize the powerful effects. So to sort of step back and realize the powerful effects that food has. And I think that this is important because a lot of us, I think, feel weak 
um, when it comes to food. And I think we all could think about a certain food that we just couldn't live without um, and that we're addicted to. And that if we even, you know, take out some of those foods, uh, specific foods, which we'll get into the effect of those, that, you know, cravings and addiction and things like that, uh, those are all things that are very real with food and they have different effects on our brain and our neurotransmitters. And that many of these symptoms are even identical for all the other, you know, addictions that people will um, face. And so what happens is that we actually find that people have opioid type um, responses from certain foods, that more dopamine is released and that different neurotransmitters make us want food. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of conversation and discussions to be had in this situation because a, I think that addiction with food is hard because it is something we have to have in our life. We can't just cut it out. And if you ever talk about addiction, how do you get past addiction? You just cut it out. You know, you go through a 12 step program or you go through, you know, different programs to cut it out of your life completely. Um, we can't do that with food. And then the other thing that I think is really sort of interesting is that it's a uphill battle and a fight that is we're fighting every day as individuals, but that it's making it harder and harder because there are people working for food companies whose whole job is to make us more addicted to food. And because if we're addicted to a certain food, that sells the food. And so that's really where I think it's an interesting and um, important conversation to have is that, you know, this addiction and food cravings. And when we get into the actual effects that it does have on the body and the brain and the reward centers of um, the brain and brain neurotransmitters, that this is something that is important for people to understand so that they understand what they're sort of going up against whenever they're trying to make food changes. So, you know, I think that um, th this is a, a very complex situation because on, on the one hand, when you talk about something and you give it the quality of addiction, uh, I think that the individual that you're dealing with can feel guilt, uh, they can feel shame, they can feel weakness, they can uh, feel that um, they're responsible uh, mm -hmm. for the addiction. And um, and I, I don't disagree with you at all that oftentimes when we have to tackle diet, we're, we're, you know, we're dealing with a circumstance where people uh, uh, do crave certain foods that um, are not ideal. But I guess, um, you know, and particularly then if you take somebody who is vulnerable because they have a new, a new diagnosis, um, you don't necessarily want to emphasize to them that, you know, besides um, uh, how they're feeling about this new diagnosis, they, they've got to worry about the fact that they have this addiction. And I guess I guess the point that I want to draw out of all of this is that, you know, another thing that I think is is coming across much more strongly as we understand more the the physiology is that um, in many cases, these addictions uh, have nothing to do with a person's weakness. Mm -hmm. um, they have um, nothing to do with um, the uh, patient being at fault that that in fact, there are very powerful physiologic changes that are occurring because of these foods that um, that 
can have this kind of an can have this kind of effect on a patient. Um, I, I do think that the way it would relate to my recommendations to the patient would be um, in the sense of letting them know how powerful these forces are that they're fighting against, and and uh, the ne- fact that they need to be kind to themselves, they need the fact that they need to understand that this is likely going to be a you know a, a process of transition, um, but that um, this isn't e- another thing that they need to be um, um, feel badly about. No, and I'm glad you pointed that out because this isn't to feel badly about it. I mean, it's really if you just go through the scenario, it's something we've all felt. You know, we're gonna we say to ourselves. Hey, you know, I am going to eat healthier tomorrow. I'm going to cut this out. I'm going to cut that out. And by 11 a.m., you know, we're back to the bread and we're back to, you know, going through a drive through. And the thing is, is it's not your weakness. It's that that food was meant to trigger you into a way to want you to have more of it. And so I think it's really important because a lot of people don't talk about this. A lot of people just think food is food is food. And that if, you know, you aren't able to make these changes, that there is just a weakness in you. Um, But really these foods are meant to really, when it comes down to what we've learned in research is they're meant to hyper stimulate your brain. And what happens then is that that has a huge effect on the reward center of your brain. um, And it changes your, uh, it changes your brain, your brain chemistry, and it makes you want to have more. And so really when it comes down to it too, that's where the, you know, I think it's important to have these conversations because honestly too, some of the foods that we have in our diet, some of the processed foods and other things like that, they do have a negative effect. They are important to cut out, but that knowing it's not just about as easy as saying that I'm going to cut this out. It's about the fact that you have to get past uh, some of those for lack of a better word, addiction uh, to the food, which is harder than just saying you're going to do it. And I think that to to emphasize this for the people that are listening is that actually there is beginning to be research which indicate that things such as gluten or things such as dairy may actually contain substances that are opioid-like. So Mm -hmm. opioids uh, being the classic example of of, uh, a a substance that can stimulate these uh, neural receptors and cause this stimulation, that in fact there are components of the food that can have an opioid-like effect that actually have proteins that can uh, interact in a way somewhat similar to opioids, which I think mm-hmm. is, is absolutely fascinating, but but it really makes you respect the fact that we have to look at these foods is, is actually having the capability of being addictive. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that when we look at the addictive um, power of food, uh, that, you know, there are, and certain proteins will have a different effect on different people's brains. And so, you know, and that's sort of really the science of addiction down the road. You know, there are some people that they become addicted to alcohol after one taste. And there are some people who can have a different relationship with alcohol or, you know, other addictions. But it's like that with food, too. So that's something to consider when we're talking about some of these opioid and dopamine responses is that some people can really get this. But some of the foods we know for sure um, causes this are things like cheese and casein, the casein protein. 
Um, gluten and gladia can cause it. Uh, and then other really addictive uh, foods is to remember anything that stimulates us. Food industries love it because if we can get a stimulating effect in our brain or our body, that they we will then want that more and we'll depend on that. If you know you need any other proof that this is true, just look at the billion-dollar industry of energy drinks. And so, you know, caffeine, um, sugar, fat, and then uh, salt and sweet things. Those are all things that we're meant to crave and to stimulate us. And so, the more that we put those into foods, the more that we'll want them more and more. Yes, and and you know, I think that the um, I think that the important point is 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 simply the recognition that there are these physiologic occurrent things that are occurring to the individual um putting the person at uh, uh, putting the person in this environment um and and it i think brings to mind the fact that we really at least in this sense, have to respect how bad food um, can can affect a, a person and mm-hmm. um, the negative, the really negative effect that it can have. And um, I think we also, I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's important to say that uh, you know one of one of the things that you've taught me that I've been slow to accept, but I think that um, um, one of the things that we're also learning more and more in traditional medicine is that it's not bad um, to to say that we have to take a personalized approach. You know, mm-hmm. we've we've been very linked, uh, certainly in cancer therapy, to scientific studies that look at what happens in groups. But um, it's also important to recognize um, that each person is an individual and has uh, an individual makeup, and uh, as a consequence of that. Um, can have more or less difficulties with how they tolerate medications, but also with how they tolerate foods. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important too, because, you know, I like your point that this isn't a blame game. This isn't meant to blame people. This is meant to sort of empower you to realize that, okay, you know, you can't really change your habits unless you even know what's causing your habits. And this isn't weak willpower. This is uh, the effect, the fact that the foods you're eating have a huge effect on your brain and brain structure. And we know that for sure. Uh, there's even research out of Harvard that says that the food we eat correlates directly with our brain, brain structure, function, and mood. And a lot of mood disorders go along with uh, specific diets. Yeah, well, maybe that's something in the next segment we can we can uh, talk a, a little bit more about because uh, because obviously the the question that comes up here is uh, um, can can you really break this cycle? You know, is yep. uh, uh, and is there research to indicate that uh, uh, how you can break it or or can you kind of reprogram the brain? So uh, I think that'll so we- be interesting to continue that. We'll talk about that and about whether or not the processed foods might be the next uh, cigarette. So stick with us. We've got lots more to talk about. You're listening to Both Sides of the Prescription on BBM Global and TuneIn Radio. America is out of control. Today's capitalism and the approach to money is in fact the symptom of a more widespread pattern of excessive behavior. In his book, The Culture of Excess, How America Lost Self-Control and Why We Need to Redefine Success, clinical psychologist Dr. Jay Slosar portrays an America where excess fuels the drive to succeed. 
Dr. Slosar examines the cultural factors that lead to excess ranging from obesity to fraud to pervasive budget deficits. His book examines the powerful economic and social factors and their impact on our psychological well-being. Dr. Slosar explores the psychological impact of increasing narcissism, perfectionism, self-destruction, and our identity confusion. He offers recommendations for helping Generation Me become Generation We. Those who resist Slosar's message will want to avoid his discussion of regulation and his recent message that at this point, democracy must be more important than today's capitalism. Get his book now online or by visiting thecultureofexcess.com. For over 50 years, Evelyn Stapula has been a loving advocate for people with disabilities throughout the state of Pennsylvania. President and founder of Big Heart Bridges, her organization actively campaigns for legislation and support of civil liberties that meet the needs of disabled individuals with housing, transportation, and employment. Ms. Dupula has joined forces with a variety of esteemed organizations that advocate for the disabled. She serves on the board of the United Cerebral Palsy of Pittsburgh and the Governor's Cabinet and Advisory Committee for People with Disabilities, and she is a consultant for the Pennsylvania Governor's Conference for Women. Her many efforts have led to the implementation of a transportation program for the disabled with the Access Paratransit System of Allegheny County. Evelyn Stapoulis strives daily to serve the interests of the disabled, to protect their freedoms, and enable them to live normal public lifestyles. To learn more, please call 412-491-2605 or email Evelyn at ers92645 at verizon.net. Welcome back, everybody, to both sides of the prescription radio show on BBM Global and Tune In Radio. So, Megan, um, you m- made a statement at the end of the last segment uh, that I-, I think we can lead into this one, and um, that was the speculation that processed food may be the the um, the next cigarette the cigarette of our generation. So yes. Um, So I think it's interesting because, so I think this is the part of me that has been the most intrigued by this conversation in general, is that I tend to want to be that person that thinks that food isn't that bad. Um, You know, I definitely am not the person that, uh, because I think there's some negative effects of just not ever eating just for enjoyment and, you know, being so worked up about your diet. Um, I do think that I always tell my patients, I think that everyone has different wiggle room that, you know, obviously with your goals, if certain, there's certain girls, you might have to eat hundred percent clean, but I do think there has to be some percentage. So that's just sort of a lead in to let everybody sort of know where I come from, where I would like to think that the food that we're being served and the food that we could all get a good diet just from fast food and convenient food. But one of the things that sort of blows me away is how different food has even been in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years and food science and, you know, what, you know, all these big companies all have food scientists that their whole job and they're paid lots and lots of money is, is to figure out food, how to make people want their food and be lifelong customers. You know, how can we get people emotionally connected, you know, to our little Debbie desserts or, you know, M&Ms or things like that. And, you know, there's some really interesting stories that really like sort of drive it home. One of them's just been in the news recently and I've shared it with you, but, you know, for our listeners that, uh, you know, General Mills has a popular children's cereal that I think we all grew up eating called um, Twix, or I can never say it, Trix, <laughs> I always want to call it, but Trix, uh, the colorful little balls. And about two years ago, they decided that they were going to use all of this research that we've been doing for the benefit of their consumers and take out all the high fructose corn syrup 
They were going to remove all the dyes that we know can be neurotoxic to children's brains and remove the excessive sugar that's, you know, in a bowl of Twix. Uh, and so what happened is that they've, for the last two years, if anyone has bought the cereal, that the colors are a little less vibrant. Instead of these neon purples and greens and yellows, we get sort of a more basic um, color because they're using uh, like beet, uh, uh, beets and radishes and different fruits to get the color so it's not as fake vibrant. And they've taken out the high fructose corn syrup and the sugar and things like that. So do you know what came to be from this? Um, well, you, you know, it. Um, I, I think that there has to be a certain kind of commitment here, you know, and and um, if um, if if you have a situation where that someone is, you know, still basically exposed to all of those things. And you have a a, proc, a product that um, that's trying to move against that um, be, because you haven't you know you haven't in, you haven't eliminated any of the other things that um, that can push you towards that addiction. I, I would suspect that it probably turned out to be a bust from a marketing standpoint um, rather than a, a kind of a success story. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, combating these, uh, these things that all people feel, uh, you know, that almost all experts feel are bad for your diet. So as of this month, uh, General Mills will now bring back the original high fructose corn syrup dyed original uh, uh, tricks uh, cereal. And the reason is, is because they couldn't, they could not handle all the complaints that they were getting from parents. And they realized what Americans want for breakfast is a grain that's pretty much doused in sugar. And so even though they were doing it for the long-term better of the children, what the people wanted was the neurotoxic sugary breakfast cereal because it's what their kids were demanding. Now I have another story if you would like it, or you can comment, you can decide. Well, no, I think, I think that, um, it you know it, it it does raise the issue of the fact that are you really are you really getting at the the central issue if you're you're trying to work with a bad product mm -hmm. and um, um, you know it uh, there are some to me some classic examples you know are you are, are you really dealing uh as another example of this are you really dealing with the problem if you take ice cream and and try to make it low fat you know is it um are are, are you in taking that product and trying to adjust it really going to get people where they should be to be eating healthy and and um i kind of question that but well I'm, this is why that's i'd like to hear your other story that's a perfect segue into my other story because I wanted to start with that first one to show you exactly that, but to say that what we need to realize as health care consumers and we consume our health through our food is that we do it the other way too. So, and I'm not picking on General Mills. Um, I probably shouldn't have even stated who made it, but um, people could look that up obviously. But General Mills has another 
very popular product called YoPlay, and you know what YoPlay is, correct? Yes. So, for it's the yogurt. So, General Mills made started making YoPlay in 1999. So, um, you know, it's been around for a little less than 20 years. But YoPlay, which is a household name, I you know I'm sure everybody has heard of YoPlay. What they did is that they took YoPlay and they transformed a traditional unsweetened breakfast yogurt into a very tasty dessert. And it actually um, contains 100% more sugar per serving than the company's Lucky Charms cereal. So what happened then is that the uh, 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 sales of YoPlay soared because people thought this is wonderful because I can now have a wholesome food that tastes good when really what they're having is a bigger serving of sugar than if they were to eat Lucky Charm cereal. And so that's really what sort of, you know, when we talk about food science and the foods that we're eating, I think that's important to sort of realize what we're up against. Yeah, I think I think those are great examples um, because uh, they're uh, – it speaks to the fact that um, one has to, you know, one has to, to to look at how do you educate someone. You know, you could say on the one hand, well, you know, you you don't go into those inside aisles of the grocery stores. You stay on the outside, and you you know you you um, you deal with organic and you deal with uh, fresh vegetables and that sort of thing. But the you know the practical truth of the matter is that uh, that uh, people are going to go into all aspects of the grocery, and pe- people do have expectations that um, that uh, they can you know that they can hopefully get. F- uh, foods that don't require complete preparation um but uh, they can be fooled and i and i think you're right i think that there's kind of a general sense that um yogurt is good and uh um obviously you can make something that could be good um uh, bad and um and uh i think that the frightening thing is that um there is more and more evidence to suggest that uh, that when you do that, um, for example, when you exponentially increase the sugar content, uh, you are going to get people to 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 have a form of addiction to it. Um, mm-hmm. Physiologically, things are going to happen to them to to make them to to want to eat more of that. Mm-hmm. And so. I actually think another interesting conversation and topic is that when we talk about food science and that uh, we talk about uh, the food industry and the processed food industry, which is now, you know, a trillion dollar industry, there are some um, terms that the food scientists and food industry use to try to make this uh, food uh, and make uh, the food more addicting. And so I thought it'd be interesting to go through some of those terms. And the first that they talk about a lot is called something called a bliss point. Um, do you want to, have you heard of bliss point? And I hadn't heard of a lot of these, so I'm not going to judge you. There's some things when you don't know it, I really, you know, get mad at you, but these are things that I don't expect to be in your vocab. Well, I, I would assume it would mean, um, a, a point, a point upon which the individual would, would simply have to have more of a product. 
Yep. So they actually, scientists spend a huge amount of time and money. Um, companies spend, you know, millions of dollars to formulate what they call the bliss point, which is that perfect amount of food, whether that be sugar, because it's usually sugar, salt, fat, something that's going to have some kind of satisfying effect on the brain. Um, caffeine is another one, uh, but that sort of bliss point, which is that perfect amount of sugar uh, or other food component that will send someone over the moon, have that effect where they just uh, have a huge, uh, benefit from it and like it so much that they'll want to spend more. And that bliss point then will cause those products to just keep selling and selling and selling. So if they can find that bliss point, you know, it's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for them to find it because then they will have lifelong consumers and people will want the food and keep coming back for it. So that is what is considered a bliss point. And that's something that they try to find with their foods. Hmm. You said you had a couple of different one, uh, ones of these uh, terms. That's certainly an interesting one. Do you have another one? So bliss point a lot of times is more the sugar. So when we talk about foods and salt, sugar, and fat, um, fat, they talk about mouthfeel. And so do you want – you could probably guess um, what mouthfeel is and the big role that it has when it comes to fat. Um, again, it, 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 uh, I would assume that it, uh, it's some kind of a pleasurable experience simply from, from the aspect of even, even before you swallow it or digest yeah. it. So it's interesting because if you look at these foods that we're addicted to, they're very obviously textile and they're very, you know, all about like the sensations that they give us. But the thing about fat is that it really satisfies us by that feeling that we get on um, that sort of you know, warm, gooey feeling of cheese um, or, you know, that sort of um, for juicy feeling of chicken or, you know, when you talk about, you know, other foods like, you know, a fatty uh, like cheesecake or something like that, that feel that you get that just automatically the second you put it in your mouth, you start to have those pleasure centers in your brain just over um, stimulate because of the fact that that fat will automatically reward the brain. So we have more terms to go over. So everyone, we're going to take a break for these next commercials, but stick with us as we talk about some of these other foods and how they have an effect on our brain. You're listening to both sides of the prescription on BBM Global and TuneIn Radio. Horses, mystical, present, past, and future, all in one. Wild, free, domestic, and healing for everyone. Betty Hames knows this and has put her horses to good use with Nature Connect Equine Coaching. Her mission is to help people affected by the loss of hope and trust in their lives and to rediscover the wonders of nature through nature-connected learning so they can rebuild their lives and live peacefully with newfound hope, trust, and joy. Betty Hames is also a certified elite life coach, a Washington State certified counselor, and chemical dependency professional. She is passionate about partnering nature with healing, and through horses, she sees amazing results and transformation in lives that might have otherwise been lost. Call 509-830-9225 and visit her at HamesLifeCoaching.com. Hold your horses. You're in for the ride of your life. Abuse happens every moment of every day. According to national statistics in the United States, every two minutes someone is sexually assaulted, and every 10 minutes a report of child abuse is made. 
Those currently struggling with abuse, or if you know someone who has been the victim of abuse, you are not alone. Whether physical, mental, emotional, or sexual, know there is hope, there is help, there is healing. Author Tammy Hall has written a book from her own account of abuse called Journey of Courage that can guide you through your own personal journey of healing. Stop struggling through life. It's your story. It's your healing. And it can begin with the first turn of the page. Visit www.journeyofcourage.com to begin your path to becoming the person you were ultimately created to be. Healed. Hopeful. Happy. Welcome back, everybody, to both sides of the Prescription Radio Show on BBM Global and TuneIn Radio. So, Megan, let's um, let's continue this a little bit. I think that these um, this is a little bit disarming. Um, I'm sure for somebody that's listening to this to understand um, how much money is put into this kind of uh, food science research. Um, but we talked about the bliss point, and we talked about mouthfeel. Um, do you have any other ones that? Um, the next term for you is sensory specific satiety. And <laughs> that is a tongue twister that I think I did really good with. Um, so sensory specific satiety. Do you want to guess what that means? Well, maybe we should um, should just, I think everybody has some idea of what sensory means, but satiety is, a, is potentially more of a, a medical term uh, that might be described as fullness. So mm-hmm. um, it it's a re- representing how full one might feel after consuming something. Yep. So sensory specific satiety is, so here's a problem that food scientists would get into. So let me tell you about the dilemma first and then how we fix it. So the big distinct flavors, like, uh, you know, when you have something that is like a very complex, um, taste, it actually can overwhelm your brain, um, which can actually cause you to want to depress your desire to have more. So clearly this is working against everything. So when we go for sensory specific satiety, what we're trying to do then, whether, you know, it's a beverage or a food is that we try to create a formula that will cause those taste buds to peak and cause those taste buds to, you know, definitely be stimulated, but just enough that we don't overwhelm them in the brain and that we can then override the brain's natural inclination to say enough is enough. And so what this is, it's a very, again, specific point, just like when we talk about, you know, bliss point and mouthfeel that allows us to feel intrigued by the food, but not so overwhelmed by the food that we don't want more. So it's um, a food, it's, it causes an effect that makes you overeat. Right. It makes you want more and more instead of being turned off because it's so overwhelming. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation and this might be a terrible, um, you know, analogy, but you know, we can, it's similar to, we can use a tens unit on a sore muscle that will heal and get the brain to rewire it. But if we turned that up too much, that's shock therapy. Same thing. You don't want the shock therapy with the food. You want that sort of intriguing stimulation of a food that would then want you to want more because it makes you feel good. And that's when you hit that sensory specific satiety point. 
Very interesting. And you, I think you said you had uh, you had one more. Last one I want to leave people with, which is a really big one, and this one's pretty self-explanatory, but I think it's really important, is the vanishing calorie density. And what that means is that what it is, is that it will have an effect on your brain, making you think that it doesn't have enough calories. So these are the things that, you know, you can't just eat one. These are the things that you're addicted to because they've actually vanished the calorie density and that the food just melts in your mouth and you just keep eating it and eating it and eating it. So I think we all have our different, you know, foods that have that vanishing calorie density. But an example would be, you know, Lay's potato chips, um, Cheetos. Uh, you know, pretty much anything out of a classic vending machine has this vanishing calorie density where you can go and eat a good serving of it, but your brain isn't being told that you're being nourished. So that's interesting, how the terminology you use. So you're saying that the signal it's giving to the brain um, isn't satisfying the brain is not satisfying the brain. And the number mm. one thing, I mean, I think anybody could guess the number one food that does this, a lot of processed foods do this, sugar-sweetened beverages do this, even red meat can do this, but the number one thing that really tacks into this vanishing calorie density is potato chips. And so, you know, we give a lot of credit to um, brain surgeons and to NASA scientists, but I truly believe some of the smartest people and the scientists that get paid the most in this country are truly the food scientists because they've, you know, created a huge industry and are very good at what they do. You know, um, I'm thinking now, Megan, uh, probably the first exposure that we ever had on film to uh, these food scientists was on the movie Vacation. Wasn't the uh, wasn't the husband? Uh, uh, didn't he work for a, a, as a food scientist for a company? Chevy Chase. Yeah, don't you remember? Well, I don't even know uh, movie uh, trivia because that actually does make. I do think I remember that now, but I would not have remembered that. <laughs> That's right. We'll have to well, call. We'll have to call Greg, your son, my brother, that knows everything about movies. All right. So, um, four very interesting terms we introduced this evening. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say five terms because I want people to remember this idea that there are certain foods that we eat that actually have within them um, proteins that you could look at as uh, opioid-like or what we call opioid peptides. So that's one word. The second word is the bliss point. Third is mouthfeel. Fourth is sensory-specific satiety. And the fifth one is this vanishing caloric density. Now, to finish up tonight, I don't want people to absolutely, totally despair. Um, is there any, any way to counter this? And I will just bring to your attention a very small study. Um, it, it, I, I don't want to make it more than, than it should be, but this was a small study that was reported recently where they looked at, um, at two groups um, that were put on a diet. One group... Um, they had portion control, their emphasis was on low uh, glycemic foods, and they had support groups. And this was a six-month study. The second group was uh, the group that wanted to be in the study, but were delayed going into the study. So they, um, they uh, had not had any exposure to, to the diet at this point. And what they did is they looked at what are called functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, some people will, will know that as an, a functional MRI. 
And what they did is they showed both groups uh, different pictures. Um, some of the pictures were a food or some of the pictures were, um, were non-food cues. And they looked at these MRIs with regard to a specific part of the brain that is associated with what Megan was talking about in terms of uh, the effect on um, these stimulants such as dopamine. This part of the brain is called the striatum. And interestingly, what they found is that, um, that in the group who had been exposed and had been on the low caloric uh, diet, when they were showed pictures of low caloric foods, they actually had greater stimulation of this striatum than the control group uh, when they looked at low caloric food images. Now, what this is suggesting is that um, there may be the hope that, that we can reprogram. Um, there may be the possibility that despite um, all of these forces working against us or pushing us in the direction of what we're describing as bad food, um, there can be, with a proper commitment, the capacity not only to eat good food, but to, to have it have a stimulatory or favorable effect on your physiology um, um, and, and reverse these uh, trends we're talking about. Yeah, no, I thought that this definitely uh, was a good conversation. And I think that that's really important to realize is that we do have the ability to change these cravings around. And so I think that's a great way to end the conversation because, you know, I think that this is very powerful to know that food has this effect on us, but that we are able and research does show that we can switch it around. So I thank you for having this conversation. I thought it was a good one. Yes, I enjoyed it also. And I hope that everybody joins us again next week at 9 p.m. Eastern time uh, on BBM Global and TuneIn Radio as we tackle another great conversation from both sides of the prescription. Thanks, guys, and have a great week. You've been listening to Both Sides of the Prescription with your host, Dr. Megan and Dr. Ron. So many times, people are only given one side of the healthcare story. Here, you get both sides. Tune in next week as we discover Dr. Megan and Dr. Ron's both sides of the prescription. You've been listening to the BBM Global Network. The ideas, views, and opinions of this broadcast are those of the participants of the program and are not necessarily the ideas, views, and opinions of the BBM Global Network Company. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.